Welcome to Other Edge with Eddie, detangling our black identities. I am your host, Eddie Etty. I am overjoyed, thrilled, and excited that you're joining our journey to explore all the different shades of black identities, have real conversations and discussions. Our conversations, stories, and discussions, though, are not meant to degrade, they're not meant to discourage, they're not meant to prove a point. Exploring black identities is all about learning, empowering, uh, growing and giving people a voice to tell their stories and at times be a voice for people who don't feel comfortable telling their stories. Hashtag, not all Black people are the same. Hey, listen, today on this episode, I have a treat for you because, I mean, I have a gentleman with me right now, Judge Kevin McKeever. Listen, a beautiful Black man. You know, so judge, a little bit about Judge McKeever. He was the first African-American judge to be sworn into the 6th District. Um, again, the 6th District covers Benton County, Iowa County, Johnson County, Jones County, Lynn County, and Tamar County um, of Iowa. Um, again, um, Judge McKeever, before, uh, before he started all of his journey, he was a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. Um, and then he was a lieutenant commander in the Naval Reserves. Uh, before that, um, he was an assistant Ramsey, uh, assistant uh, Ramsey County attorney. He was a staff attorney at ACT. He was an assistant Muscatine County attorney. Um, hey, Judge McKeever also serves on the board. Um, he's a board member of the African American Museum of Iowa. My man, he enjoys bicycle riding. He loves reading books. A lot of people have talked about him as he's being, he's compassionate. And intelligent is understatement because brilliant gentleman. He's a committed family man, a great friend above all. Judge McKeever is one of the most honorable men with the highest integrity that I've ever known. Judge McKeever, welcome to On the Edge with Eddie. What is going on in the legal world today? Hey. Well, first of all, thank you for that that introduction. Um, I really appreciate it. I yeah, if you want to take that... me with you, if you want to take me with you, um, everywhere you go to introduce you. I can do that and just bring a boombox. <laughs> Every time you walk into the room, I'll be like, hey, hold on. Here comes Judge Makiva. Let me give you a little bit of introduction. <laughs> we might have to do that. That might be fun. <laughs> so, oh, well. yeah. Sorry, so go ahead. yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit going on in, in the legal world today, as you know. Um, and I think that, you know, just if I could say one thing about me and why I joined the legal field and to begin with, I think a lot of people joined for similar reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but the legal field I've always seen as a field where um, you can make a contribution to society in a, in a very special way, because, you know, the rules and the way those rules are applied are central to how people are treated in any society. And I think if you look at a variety of societies, uh, in some societies, it only matters who you know and how much money you have and what kind of influence you have as to whether or not you are or are not able to take advantage of the rules. And I know that you know in our, our system here, the principles at least are that people come in, I never will forget somebody walked into the courtroom in one of the uh, smaller counties and he said, you know, I, I know I probably don't count that much because I don't have that much money. And I said, wait, hold on a second. I said, I don't care if you have $10 in the bank or $10 million. I'm going to listen to what you have to say because that's my job as a judge. So um, anyway, you that's, asked what was going on in the legal field yep. today. So I wanted that story popped into my head. I wanted oh, no to share. Doubt, no doubt. That, see, that's the integrity I'm talking about. Uh, definitely an honorable man. But see, so let's let's detangle you a little bit. Um, you were born in Chicago, south side of Chicago, right? I mean, um, a lot of listeners have heard all of this, you know, horror stories of south side Chicago and how dangerous it is and all the gang and stuff like that. 
you grew up in the south side of Chicago, born and raised there. Tell me a little bit, what was it like uh, climate wise growing up in south side of Chicago for you from, you know, when you were young to when you got to about, um, you know, junior high. Then we'll talk about high school later. Okay, so let me just tell you a little bit about it. I'll first say for the people who are listening that all the stories you hear about the South Side of Chicago, what you're picturing the South Side of Chicago being like probably isn't, it probably isn't as bad as the reality if you're there, having grown up there. Now, having said that, um, it probably is a little bit worse than the picture that I have in my mind because that's my home. And I, I really loved growing up in Chicago. Um, there, there is some violence in Chicago as there is in many um, parts of the country, particularly when there are larger population centers, more people, more crime. But the thing is um, they make, in some of these news reports, they make the South side of Chicago out to be kind of like a war zone or something. It's not right, like right? that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> when, going to school every day, I went to school every day. Um, and you're talking about up through junior high. So um, I didn't see a lot of violence uh, growing up personally. Um, in a city of 3 million people, I was accustomed to turning on the news and every night hearing about some sort of violence that took place somewhere in the city. Right. But I was not a witness to a lot of it. I did see some unfortunate incidences growing up, but um, I, I, it was not commonplace. Um, now, like I said, having said that, when you, when you grow up in a place and you're used to it, your perspective is different. But I can tell you that the picture that most people have, most people think if they go and visit Chicago that um, somehow they're putting themselves into in danger. And that's simply not true. If anyone wants to visit the next time I'm there, you stick with me. Right. <laughs> nothing will happen to you. <laughs> so so. The south side, on the south side, though, is it predominantly, um, uh, it's predominantly black, right? There isn't a lot of uh, mixed race or Caucasians in the south side of Chicago where you grew up. Is that correct? Uh, well, actually, you know, that's one of those, uh, the, that's one of those myths that everyone thinks is true, but actually isn't true. <laughs> so right. the south side of Chicago is divided into um, different areas. Okay. I grew up in South Shore, which is predominantly black, but I went to school in Hyde Park, which at the time, I don't know what the racial makeup is now, but right. at the time was actually very diverse. And by that, I mean that, you know, I, I did look up the numbers and somehow I happened to remember what they were back in uh, the, the 1980s. And the numbers were fairly even uh, black and white. And then there, so about 40% a piece, uh, give or take a couple of percentage points. And then the um, 20% uh, of other races um, meaning 20% of the people who lived there were neither black nor white. Um, and so my environment um, was already, you can see the environment was more complicated than it's made out to be on television, right? right? Well, Hyde yeah. Park is five minutes from South Shore. South Shore is over 90% black. Hyde Park is rather diverse and Hyde Park is pretty close geographically to downtown Chicago, which is very cosmopolitan. Right. So, and then the West side uh, of Chicago. So when you talk about the South side, the further West you get on the South side, the, the racial makeup changes a little bit. And then if you just go to the West side, which includes a number of different areas, it becomes even more complicated. And then yeah. the North side, um, you know, I can loosely talk about the North side, but that society is not as is not as, as simple as, as it's made out to be in media. Right. Um, and so you just have to, to get a really good picture of what Chicago's like, come there with me, drive around with me. I'll tell you all about all the different areas, um, <laughs> yep. but you can't, you can't boil it down to, well, this is where black people live. This is where white people okay, live. Right. Here's yeah. where, you know, Asian people live, it's, it's not, not so simple. Some areas are predominantly black, some are predominantly white, some are diverse, 
and um, you just have to know the areas. I know Chicago fairly well, but um, it, it's it's complicated, I guess, is the answer. Right. But I mean, so you do bring up a really good point because a lot of people, I mean, again, what they see is what they know, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, so prior to that, you know, we're having a conversation about, you know, what is news, right? BBC News versus like ABC News and stuff like that. And so it's interesting. So coming from Ghana, when I have conversation with people, what they know about the African continent is what they see on TV, right? You know, so you have people asking questions like, oh, um, did you sleep on trees or did you have pet lions? And because that's all they see, which, you know, like what you're saying, it makes perfect sense that if all people see or hear about Chicago is the violent and the, um, the, the gang and the people <laughs> killing each other and like the quote unquote war zone that is shared in the public, that's what people are going to see and acknowledge at all. It's that's what side of Chicago is. Um, so let me ask you this question though. So again, you grew up in South side of Chicago. Um, like you said, South side of Chicago is not what, you know, they make it seem like it is. Um, did, did growing up in South side, being a black man, did race play a role in who you are uh, as far as your identity and how you function in different spaces? Um, all right, so that's a very complicated question. <laughs> um, so I guess the best answer is probably. Um, because the only way for me to really know that for sure would be for me to rewind time and then grow up at a different color and then see if I turned out differently. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, in society we have we have to, I think we have to admit that our identity is composed of a number of different things. Our friends impact our identity. Our culture impacts our identity. Our parents, our siblings, um, the experiences we have, it all impacts our identity. Right. And I think that the way that we interact and move through society is governed to some degree by what our race is right. because society responds differently to different races. And I think that, you know, when we, one of the things, for instance, um, that I think is true is that as a black person, it is very difficult to grow up in society and not experience some sort of racism, whether it's hearing a racial slur, whether it is being looked at um, differently right. in different circumstances, it's, it's difficult, it's very difficult to move through life here in the United States and not encounter it at some point. Right. And, and it, I think it would be, um, I don't think it would be completely intellectually honest to say that we can have those experiences and have them have no effect on us. I think that they do have an effect on us because they impact our, um, they, they impact our journey to a certain degree. If you go through life and your journey does not involve any instances of that, right you might not think that it's an issue. You might think, well, you know, I, because experience does teach us a lot of things. I noticed that, you know, I, I have a, um, uh, someone who's very close to me who uh, was never afraid of riding in elevators until they got stuck in an elevator. And now they are afraid to ride in elevators. It just as an example, right? Yep, you know, yep. If something happens to you, it's hard to say yep. that it's not going to have any impact on you. Um, now, how you now there, there's a but there see I want to make a distinction here. There's a difference between something having an impact on you, and something getting an, in the way of some of the goals that you set for yourself in society. Mm. And so, if the I, I would like to say that 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 um, I have navigated my journey in life with the attitude that if there 
is a barrier there to the extent there is one that I won't let it stop me that I'm going to go through that barrier. And so, you know, in some cases, some of the things that we try to achieve in life, there could be any number of barriers that exist. Race could create a barrier. Um, Class could create a barrier. Uh, Where you went to school could create a barrier. Um, The friends that you either know or don't know could create a barrier. The question is, what are you going to do when those barriers exist? And some of them are easy to see. Some of them are not. I would say one of the things about race in contemporary society is that much of the time it's difficult to detect whether it is or is not a factor in the way others treat you or view you. Because much of um, the uh, time people don't um, express their um, feelings, whatever they may be, about race. Because when you talk about race, people become very uncomfortable, usually, right. unless they're very good friends of yours right. or very, very close to you. Very uncomfortable, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and most people, like even friends of mine, don't want to talk about it. They, they, they're afraid that, and it's not that their, their views, don't misunderstand me, it's not that everyone has all these horrible views uh, about uh, people of other races. The fact of the matter is, it is an uncomfortable conversation because of all of the negative things which have happened in our history surrounding this issue. And people are very emotional when the topic comes up and everyone's afraid to speak their mind. People, some people, I think, I think that, um, so I'm just gonna talk about, you know, from my own personal perspective. Right. The time that I've been hesitant to speak my mind is because I feel like sometimes I would not be understood if I speak my mind. Right. Yeah. I am afraid that my audience won't won't hear me, or that if I think something might be unfair on the basis of race, I might be seen as being self-serving or right. too sensitive. So a lot yeah. of times during this journey, I've kept it to myself. Now, has that impacted me? Probably. Yeah. So I would say I would say probably it has impacted me. Ultimately, did it impact my journey in that what I have ended up someplace else? That's that's a lot harder to say. I don't know. Yeah. But I think so, that that's that's how I look at it. Yeah. OK. Right. Yeah. So the, was there something because you had mentioned that, you know, when you get to a point, there is some barriers in everything that you 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 face right there's something mm-hmm. that's going to try to stop you whether it's race or class or um whatever it is but and then you said you know you made a decision that uh, you are either going to you know go through it or not let that affect you was there an incident that happened to empower you to make that decision or was it just something that it was just part of you or was it just how you were raised I mean, i'm trying to figure out how what really impacted that decision for you? All of the above. So um, I'll just talk about the, the component that you mentioned, how I was raised. I remember when I was looking for a summer job and I remember um, being worried about a lot of things. I was worried about, you know, all right, would, would my school be good enough? You know, was my suit good enough? Um, does, did I present myself well enough? And then, oh, by the way, I'm also a black person. So is that going to have some idea? And I remember talking to my father about this and I said, you know what, there, there could be all kinds of things that could hold a person back in this society. Right. And I'm not going to focus on any of them. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to give it my best shot and whatever happens, happens. If I get the job, I get the job. If I don't get the job, I don't get the job, but I'm not going to let these things hold me back. A lot of, some people, I think, and well, I'm not going to apply to this place because they're not going to take me anyway. My grades, you know, are not in the top 10%. You know, I'm in the top 20%, but that that may not be good enough. You know, I don't know if my suits, these guys wear suits from Italy and mine aren't that expensive. You know, I don't know if I, I fit in. Well, look, I'll tell you one way you will definitely end up sitting on the sidelines. If you don't try, that's when you can be 100% sure that you will not get picked. Right. I said, I'm not going to self-select myself out of any opportunity that I want. I'm going to go for it. And if I get it, great. But I and I may not get it. And there were a lot of opportunities that I did not get. But there, you know, that there wasn't a single one of them that I didn't try to get. And I think that that's 
one of the things that um, people, I think, would, there are two, two, two lessons in that for people. One, trust in the people who really care about you. Everybody's got advice. People say, oh, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. You know, I relied on the people who I knew. I knew my father had my best interest at heart. A lot of people told me, well, do this, wear this color suit. I, I didn't listen to any of them. I listened to my father. I listened to people who I knew truly cared about me. Now, they weren't always right, but I listened. I heard what they had to say yep. because anyone can just pop in and say, well, you should do this. You should do that. But if they don't really, if they're not really invested in you, if they don't really care about you, right. then I think that it is risky to listen to them. They, they may be right, but I wouldn't count on it because do they really know you is the question, right? And if they don't really know you, how can they give you this kind of advice and why do they care? And do they have an ulterior motive? Right. All those things are always, so the lessons are never give up and surround yourself with people who really care about you because those people will get you further than anyone else in life, in my experience. Did the, the experience for you change at all in high school and college? Um, again, you went to uh, Northwestern in Evanston. Right. Um, uh, and then after that, you went to the University of Iowa Law School. Let's talk about um, before law school, you went to Northwestern and then you joined um, the Navy, right? right. So um, high school and college, um, did that experience at all, did anything change for you when you got into those spaces? Um, and then we can talk into what in the Navy. So here's an interesting thing. When I went to college, um, I didn't, my parents did me a huge, so thinking about it in those terms, um, high school wasn't, wasn't, there wasn't much of a change between junior high and high school. I was an older version of myself. I still yeah. um, really enjoyed sports. I still enjoyed my classes, my friends, you know, trying to uh, listen to my parents to the extent that I wouldn't get into trouble, but not so much so that I didn't have any fun. You know, every, every teenager goes through that phase, right? Yep. <laughs> <You know>? yep. <laughs> um, and then going off to college, but one thing my parents really did for me that I, I didn't realize how special it was here in the United States was that they raised me to see the humanity in every person first before they, before you see anything else. Mm. And what's interesting is I've shared that with people before. And people sometimes have a bad reaction to that. They say, well, it sounds to me like you're saying you're colorblind. And I said, no, I, I didn't say that I didn't see your color. Right. What I said was I saw your humanity first, right. which to me, you, I think that it is, I actually, there are going to be people who, people who disagree with this, but I actually think if you see my color first, I actually think there's something wrong with that. Yeah. Because you're assuming some things based on my color, which may or may not be true. And in many cases, you know, some people sometimes will ask me just to illustrate this point, the general question, well, what does the black community think about this or that? And I said, well, first of all, there is no such thing as the black community. Right. There are many yep. black communities. Hashtag there are many black, black people the same. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Well, right. that, that's why I thought it would fit into your theme yep. if I said that. Because, because yep. <laughs> I've had this, I've had this argument with people. I say, like, you can't see my color first because you don't know what my color means. You don't know what my humanity means until you talk to me. Now, my color does mean something, but trying to figure out what it means, you can't tell that until you see my humanity first. So I see the humanity in people. And when I went to college, I realized there were very few people who, who did that. Many people would see me as a black person say, okay, this person probably plays sports, does this X, Y, Z, just had all these ideas, you know, because back then in the 80, 1987, we had a lot of um, black people who were going to universities, scholarships to play sports. So they see me, they figured, oh, you know, Northwestern must be a football player or something like that. They didn't, they didn't know anything about me. Right. right? Yep. And so that's the danger in saying, well, I see color first. I don't want you to see color first. I want you to see my humanity and talk to me and figure out what it is that makes me a human being. Then see my color after that. I'm not saying don't see my color. Of course, I want you to see it. It's right. part of who I am. But I don't want you to assume anything based on that, that fact. 
see. Mm-hmm. Ah, yeah. you're preaching. <laughs> <laughs> I have a habit yeah. of doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pre- I, I'm just like, I'm just here thinking, oh my, you, you are so on point because you're right. Like, again, one of the reasons why I started this whole podcast is hashtag not all black people are the same, right? So, you know, when people say, you know, when people actually, you know, look at me and look at you, um, especially not in our professional environment, and they don't know, you know, what we do in our profession, and they see us and they say, oh, a black man, right? Um, and all of the sort of the preconceived notions of, of, of what they have of a black man sort of just start pouring out, right? And start treating, um, you know, people as they think they should treat them, you know, it, it becomes, again, a difficult conversation to have. But you do bring up a good point of looking at humanity first, because again, hashtag not all black people are the same, right? You know, and not all black people actually spend time hanging out together. You know, like there, I've mm-hmm. talked to some guests that they don't feel comfortable you know, being friends with certain groups of Black people, right? Because their beliefs are different. Um, Mm -hmm. Their attitude are different. Their class is different, right? So, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, when people see color, they see a Black person and they treat that Black person according to, you know, a certain standard or certain stereotype, it's really unfair to Mm -hmm. me as a Black man and you as a Black man, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So then what went into going into the Navy? Um, Mm -hmm. You went to Northwestern, got a mm-hmm. bachelor's degree. Why, why, why the Navy? Well, so I, I wanted to. So first of all, my uh, I come from um, family of people who um, have served in the military. Um, my uncle spent some time in the Navy. My grandfather um, was did some research. He was a civilian, but he worked on a, a naval research ship um doing something that that he never was allowed to tell us about um it's probably all declassified now right but given what he so just putting two and two together after he did his work he set up shop um in town um with a a radio and tv repair uh set and he also knew how to build an antenna so i'm assuming given the time that he was doing this work, that he was working on some kind of radar systems would be my guess. Um, but he never did tell us. <laughs> it was supposedly classified as a post. Right, I, yeah. I don't know if he was putting <laughs> us on or not, but, <laughs> but um, so anyway, my father was in the um, Ar- army airborne. Um, I used to kind of joke with him and ask him why he thought it was a good idea to jump out of a perfectly good, working airplane, (laughs) but, uh, you know, so I, I, I wanted to, and then, you know, my, uh, my track coach also, who was, um, um, very helpful to me when I was in high school, uh, was, uh, an air force veteran. So there were a lot of people I looked up to who had done some sort of service, uh, to the country. And I remember having this conversation with my, my sister and I said, you know, I really wanted to, to go in and do my part to um, serve the country, defend the country, et cetera. And I remember she said, you know, there's a lot of things wrong with this country. And I said, I said, I don't disagree with that. There, this country is run by human beings, was designed by human beings. Human beings are flawed. There are flaws that exist here. But um, there are a lot of things which are, which are good about the place in which we live. And I think the, um, the bottom line is, I feel like the country in which we grew up, the country in which we live is worth defending. And while I'm young enough and strong enough to do my part, I wanna do right. that. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, I remember that because my sister and I, um, we talked a lot growing up uh, and we talk about, you know, how it is when you're, 17 you think you know everything so we had all these you know what we thought were deep philosophical conversations (laughs) about what the world is like and that kind of thing and but I do remember I talked to my mom about it I talked to my sister I talked to my dad you know in keeping with the theme of talking to those closest to you and uh, you know my father he uh, I remember when I was getting ready to go off to my training I had my uniform on 
and he he said he he grabbed me by the shoulders. He he usually wasn't very you know he was kind of like he'd pat you on the back you know and stuff like that. He was one of those old yeah. tough guys. Yeah. But um but that morning I mean he grabbed my shoulders like this and he said he looked me in the eye he said son are you sure you want to are you sure this is what you want to do? And I said. I said, I'm sure. He said, okay. Then he gave me a hug and took me to the airport. I had my uniform, my sea bag, and mm. I went and started my training. So, because he knew, you know, having served, he knew yeah. what that meant. He knew that, it, you know, you could be killed um, at any time if you have to, you know, it's one thing, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, say, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll stand up, I'll fight, and I'll protect my home. Yeah. But it's another thing when you actually have to do it. Um, and, uh, so he was, I, you know, he was, he was more emotional. He was, he never, you know, he was always, I will say this, like he would always tell us that he loved us. So I won't, you know, it's, it's not like he wasn't one of those guys that couldn't say, I love you. There's yeah, some people yeah. like that. He would tell us that, but that, that morning I could tell it was a different cause he was looking at his son and he was like, you know, I know I did this, but I don't know if I want you to do it, but he supported <laughs> right, my yeah. decision right. and he treated me like a man that day. Yeah. He said, you know, you're a man, this is your decision, but I want you to tell me, look me in my eye and tell me this is what you want to do. Yeah. And when I told him that, he said, okay, we got in the airport, he drove me to the airport. So to answer your question, people I looked up to um, served and uh, I wanted to do my part to uh, defend the country that yeah. is our home. Well, first off, thank you for your service, <laughs> uh, for going out and serving and protecting this country. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, secondly, when you were in the Navy, um, again, going back to sort of the Black narrative, mm -hmm. um, again, you hear stories and stuff like that, again, a lot of which I'm sure are true. Um, did the going back to your your um, comment about you see humanity first instead of seeing um, instead of seeing color or seeing uh, a black individual? Anytime when you were in the Navy, did you get any any situation or at any point in time experience that people were not looking at you, humanity, the, just looking at you, the color? Did you what? And if you can, if you can, or oh, I don't know if you can share or not, but if you can share any experiences of when somebody look at you and you realize, oh, they're looking at me as a black man versus looking at me as Kevin McKeever. Well, it's interesting because the military um, is a different. It's a very different environment. Um. And I think in a lot of ways, so we have, everyone I think would acknowledge that we have problems with prejudice and racism in our society. Right. In a lot of ways, the military, um, is, so to answer your question, not, not really, not overtly, I didn't. Um, but I want people to understand that, um, when you're when you're given so I went in the military as an officer, and um, the military creates a situation where there are you know you talk about intersectionality and a lot of things play into it, right? And so there can be you know black people officers, white people, men, women, but the first thing people see in the military by design and by training is whatever rank you have on your on your collar so they don't see your humanity first and, and to some degree i'm not sure they i don't i don't know if people ever really do on the level that i'm talking about because we 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 have to push our humanity aside a little bit in right. order to do that kind of job mm. so yeah. um you know if you can like when part of the training is you talk about, well, what happens if there are all these casualties and, you know, two people are seriously hurt. Who do you treat first? Right. You know, what, what do you do? Do you sometimes decide that, you know, okay, the ship is going to sink. If you don't do this, this whole ship will sink and everybody dies. But if you do that, then you can't tend to this person who's bleeding to death on the floor. What do you do? You know? Right. And, and, and so when you have to make those kinds of decisions, it's 
it's a different mindset that you have to force yourself to have in order to maintain your sanity to some degree. So really what people see, the first thing they say, see in the military environment is whatever rank you have on your, on your collar. Um, and they'll also see what color you are. Cause I remember doing it myself. I was like, and I'd be like, cause I did it, you know, I would get excited if there was a higher ranking, you know, black officer, I'd be like, first thing I'm like, Oh, there's a Colonel I'm saluting. And then when I'm looking at him, it's like, Oh, that's a black Colonel, you know? (laughs) And so you didn't see a lot. Yeah. You, you, you would be excited because, um, the military has worked to try to become more and more diverse. When I joined, it was less diverse in the officer ranks. You didn't see a lot of um, officers. I think I was in for two years before I saw a black female naval officer mm. that was, you know, that had earned yeah. her commission. So, you know, as a black person, I liked to see that kind of diversity. And I have to say, there were a lot of white people who overtly expressed pleasure at seeing that kind of diversity. So, you know, and in the military, so the one other thing I'll say about that, remember it was 1947 when, it was in the 40s, I think it was 1947 when the armed forces were officially desegregated and it took decades to actually make that work. But one thing that happens when, when there's experience, you learn things. And companies outside the military um, didn't really even focus on it for another few decades. And many companies wouldn't hire black people uh, in the forties and fifties. So, um, you know, you have to realize that the military does have a longer tradition uh, and some prominent military officers openly spoke out uh, during that era about how um, it was un-American to exclude um, anyone who wanted to serve their country in any capacity that they could, they could qualify to do so. Yeah. So my experience in the military was, was probably somewhat different than you might expect. Where I, where I said not really, and there, here's the caveat was, I do remember in a couple of meetings when I had the best idea and that idea did not get done and I couldn't figure out why that would be. Right. Um, and I, I was forced to wonder. Um, about whether, you know, it's one of those things where there's all these different things. Now, it may have been that I was one of the youngest officers and maybe it was, I didn't have as much experience. Maybe other people that were higher ranking, you know, thought something different should happen, but maybe there was another reason. And you always, and that's the problem is you always look to wonder, you don't know sometimes. But my experience in the Navy overall was very positive. Um, I managed to, you know, every time I was up for promotion, I always got it. Um, And so I didn't feel that there was anything holding me back in that regard. And I think in the armed services, generally, you don't find a lot of people uh, who would, um, at least I didn't experience it, you know, and and in addition to that, um, and here's one of the things that really makes it work. The, 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 the commanders and the people who were in charge made it clear that they would court-martial anyone who did anything racist. Right. And so, you know, when the leaders say something, everyone else listens, whether they want to or not. Now, I think most people wanted to, but even if there were some people there who didn't want to, they didn't have a choice. And in a military environment, it's both good and bad. You have no choice. You do it. And so you know, the, the bottom line is, and I remember one, there's one other story. It was a, a, a white guy. He was a, an 06, which is the same thing as a Colonel. Um, but it's a captain in the Navy came on board and he, he posted the, um, the records of, uh, black officers up on the board. And he said, I want you to see that, you know, every once in a while, when I hear someone grumbling after they've had a beer or two, I said, I want you to see, every one of these black officers is doing better in their category than most of the other people uh, assigned to these units. And he said that, you know, and his, his point was, you know, very clear when, when the leaders do that, when leaders do things like that, um, you know, diversity and companies are now seeing that that's the way to go. You know, if the CEO says something, everyone does it. Right. And, you know, commander, the base commander comes on there, the commander of a ship comes in there and says, 
here's what we're doing. And, and I don't want to hear this because here's the data to prove it. Then you don't get much argument. And in the military, like I said, you don't have a choice. So my experience was very good overall. I was in active duty 91 to 98. So long before most companies were doing a good job with diversity, right. I think the military was doing a better job. Yeah, and then you were lieutenant commander in 99 to 2007. Right. Um, so I am going to skip your whole law career. You went to All law right. school. Um, yeah. you, were, you, you were a lawyer and attorney for a couple of years. And then you transitioned from being a lawyer to a judge. Again, like I said, you were the first African-American um, to be in the sixth district, um, to be appointed to the bench in the sixth district. And one of the things that I, I, I think you said um, when you became a judge was uh, being a judge is sometimes easier than being a lawyer, right? Because mm -hmm. as a judge, you know, you know the rules, um, but you don't really have to, I guess, uh, be concerned uh, for the strategy uh, for, for you to win, right? Because again, you know, your concern is the citizens that walk into the courtroom um, and they want to have their disputes settled fair and peaceful in a manner that's equi equitable to both sides. So let's go to, let's fast forward to you're a judge and you're on the bench. You, you get a lot of difficult decisions. Um, I want to start off with more of taking your, your judge hat off for a second. All right. Right. So you're not a judge now. You, I'm, you're just, you're just a black man. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so um, when we start talking about the, the social injustice movement from 2000, you know, 2020 with uh, George Floyd, um, mm -hmm. all of those things happening. Um, before we put your judge hat on as a black man, mm -hmm. when you see a video of what happened to George Floyd, how did that make you feel? How did that affect you? Oh, well, I mean, I think anyone who has any humanity, if they see someone uh, die on a video, it's got to make them uh, angry and sad um, because anytime there is any interaction between two human beings and one of them ends up dead, something went wrong. Right. And so if you start there, um, then I think that you can build on that. So then the question is, all right, well, what went wrong? And if you look at um, the fact that here you have a situation um, involving someone whose job it is to protect the community who, um, whose actions resulted in the death of another person who was a member of the community, Yep. then you can further say that something went wrong. Now, um, you know, I think that, and it's impossible. I know you said for me to take my judge hat off. It's impossible for me to <laughs> Probably, <completely> yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I will, I will point out that the trial hasn't happened yet, you know? Right. Yep. And so we have to see what happens in the trial before we conclude anything further than that. But I think that to answer your question, you see someone who dies as a result of the actions of another person, and it's on video. The emotions that I think most people feel, most people who have some humanity, are anger and sadness. I think those are the two primary emotions. Um, because you don't want people to die um, especially if, and, and then, so here's the other thing is, especially if it can be avoided. Right. Um, so that's, I guess, the answer. Have you, have you personally um, been in a situation um, either, I don't know, more recently or, you know, after you became a lawyer and a judge, have you had an experience that, um, either you were either pulled by um, an officer or you went to the store and people following you. Have you had a similar experience that you know if you haven't reacted a certain way, it would have ended up in, you know, in a bad situation? Um, well, I can't say that anything like that has ever happened to me. I mean, certainly, um, you know, when I was, one of the things is I think, um, our society 
um, views younger people differently than it views older people generally. Um, you know, when I was younger, I, I recall um, being in a um, store in the suburbs of Chicago and being followed around. Um, I remember being in a store in Arkansas where um, the, uh, the people were, were rude. Um, I remember, uh, you know, being in California in a store where people were, were the, the, the people there were, were rude to me, um, you know, and didn't, didn't act like they wanted to help me. That, that happened actually a couple times in California, which is the other interesting thing about not assuming things, um, because quite right. frankly, many of my pleasant experiences were in Georgia and Arkansas, and, and a couple of my very un, unpleasant experiences were in California. So you can't, you know, when I say you can't assume anything, you can't assume <laughs> you anything. You can't assume anything. Yeah. 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 Well. <laughs> so, but, but to answer your question, no, I mean, I, not, nothing like that. Um, but I, you know, I've had my share of unpleasant experiences. Um, you know, one of them was when I was in, in the military and I was going to go, you know, a lot of us were trying to get our expert qualification with the pistol and we didn't have enough time when we were on duty to go to the range. So I was going to, um, and you couldn't take the pistols off the base, of course. So I was going to go buy my own, uh, pistol and practice. Um, and the first door I went into, the guy says, to me that he doesn't sell guns to gangbangers. Uh, and I said, well, that's, that's, that's very nice. If I see any gangbangers, I'll tell them not to come into your store. Right. <laughs> and then he said, Oh, well, I didn't mean you. And I said, well, we're the only two people in the store. Who are you talking right. to? If you didn't mean me. <laughs> yeah, shadow, maybe. <laughs> Is it your imaginary friend standing next to you? <laughs> in either case, I'm still leaving the store without buying anything, but <laughs> right. yeah. you know, yeah. so things like that happened to me, but I, I've never felt, um, yeah. You know, um, I haven't had any any bad any, interactions. So put put back your judge hat, uh, your judge yeah. hat now. Um, <laughs> back to Judge McKeever. Um, so again, there is like, there is a lot of reports. Again, this is not my space, and I don't know anything about this space. But mm -hmm. I read reports about you know the um, disparities and the um, uh, disparities in state prisons. Um, you know, mm -hmm. something crazy like African Americans are incarcerated in state prisons across the United States are more than five times the rate of whites, um, mm -hmm. and at least ten times the, the rate in uh, five different states. Um, as a judge, I mean, you know, for you, again, I, I, I know you and I know, um, you know, your integrity and, you know, you're, you're um, a man of honor and stuff like that. As a judge, when you see this numbers, what goes through your head? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I, I've been asked that question before. Um, and, um, you know, the answer might be, might surprise you. I don't really think about that very much when I do my job. My, my job is to do the right thing in each and every case that I have. Right. And so when I'm doing my job, that kind of thing doesn't, doesn't have um, a place in my thought process. Um, now, I will tell you that that when I have time to reflect, when I have time to think about our system overall, um, I think about some of the work that's being done. And there's some good work being done um, to fix um, our system so that it is more equitable. Right. And I think that the unfortunate component that exists is that right now we have a lot of what I'll call tinkerers. Um, there are people who don't work in the system, don't know what really happens inside the system, don't know what's wrong with the system, don't know what needs to be done, and yet they're suggesting changes. Right. And what they don't realize is that suggesting a change without having all of the information, without knowing what really needs to be done, 
can do more harm than good. And I, I love to use analogies, so I'll use one now. Yeah. You know, if your car were broken and it was because it was making a noise and you brought it to me and I said, oh, this is the thing that's making the noise. It's hitting up against that thing. So I take it and I break it off, toss it aside. All right. Now it's not making noise anymore. But now <laughs> you've broken something else. You know, you took care of the noise, but you didn't take care of the problem. And I kind of feel like we have there are a lot of people who um, don't like our system. And I don't fault them for that. I think that there are some things I tell people all the time. There are a lot of good things about our system, but there are a lot of things that we need to improve. Yeah. And I think that we need to really understand what's wrong before we start tinkering with things. And a lot of people are impatient. They want to change now. They want to change this. They want this kind of a board. They want these kinds of committees and they want these kinds of rules, yeah. but they don't really know how to make the system better. People like me, and I've been in the legal field for 20 years. Right. I've been a lawyer in two different states. I've worked in the private sector. I've worked in the uh, public sector and I've worked as a judge. I have a lot of work to do before I can really understand what needs to be changed. And, and if I have a lot of work to do, someone who doesn't know anything about the system <laughs> right. is not going to know what needs to be changed. So you right. take your car to a master mechanic and they say, I need to do two hours worth of diagnoses as opposed to breaking off the thing that makes noise. And you say, no, I'm going to take it back to McKeever. He's going to break the thing off and then it's not going to be making noise anymore. Right. Well, no. And, 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 and honestly, you know, while I appreciate people being enthusiastic and wanting to make positive change. I do think that there is a good way to make positive change. And the good way to make positive change isn't by making things worse. It's by careful analysis and suggesting changes that can actually make a difference in a positive way. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in my spare time, I do work on those kinds of things. There are a number of, of uh, initiatives that are, are going around. I'll mention one of them. Um, I could talk for probably another hour about those things, but I'll, I'll just mention one. Right. So in one of those things we have figured out in the juvenile system, and honestly, I mean, I did juvenile law. I would not have known this in 2001 because we didn't have the data. Right. We now have some data that tells us that our some of our initial ideas were wrong. It used to be that we thought that if a juvenile did something minor, that you were and you were really tough on that juvenile, they would straighten up and they would behave properly and they wouldn't get in further trouble. Mm -hmm. The data tells us that that's wrong. The data tells us that in many cases, if a juvenile does something minor and you put them through the traditional probation system, have them brought in if they, they violate curfew, if they do the slightest thing wrong, what you're likely to do is you're more likely to have that juvenile reoffend in many cases, than if you do not do that. Right. So if the question, if people say, well, we have to hold these people accountable for what they're doing. My, my, my question, why do we do that? We do it so they don't get into more trouble because if someone doesn't get into more trouble, they are better off themselves and society is better off. They're better off themselves because they are not in further trouble. Society is better off because they are making a positive contribution to society instead of sitting in juvenile detention. So if there's a way to do that, then that is what we should do. And that's one of the things that that's being worked on um, here in, in the state of Iowa in several different um, jurisdictions. There are creative um, diversion programs, which actually teach the juvenile what they've done wrong and teach them how to do something different so that they actually will do a better job in the future Right. both for themselves and for society. So that's one example. Yeah. Now, you know, want someone who hadn't studied this material for some period of time would not know to do that. Yeah. Um, 
so that's one example. There are many others, but I'm sure you have more questions. All right. So, hey, hey listen, I, I, I have a lot of um, stuff to uncover, but we don't have enough time to do it. One last question, though, um, uh, before I let you go. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, putting in systematic changes to change behavior, to change mindset, to change biases and uh, all of the injustices. You know, again, it's going to take a systematic approach to resolve a lot of this issue. What would you say to people that says, you know what? Well, the system is unfair to black people, right? The system is not set up to benefit black people. The system is set up to disadvantage black people. Um, what would you say to those individuals that are just, you know, thinking about, you know what? Hey, you know, the system is set up so to look at color first. And so if you look at color, um, somebody who has committed the same crime, if they're white, they get less uh, um, less time in prison versus if they're black, they get maximum sentences. What would you tell those people? Well, I think that, you know, I, I could understand why people would, would think that that would be true. Um, but, you know, and I will say that there are elements of truth in those beliefs, but as with many things, the devil is in the details, so to speak. You know, it is a problem that your car was making noise. Right. But I broke your car more by breaking the piece off that was making noise. <laughs> so, so the question is, how? What is our goal? What do we want to do? You know, I hear people all the all time say, "Well, let's dismantle the system because it's no good." Well, you know, so if your car isn't getting good gas miles, do you take it to the thing and crush it, and then just buy a completely new car, or do you take it to the shop and fix it? Yeah. So, you know, I. I don't believe in destroying things simply because there are things that we don't like about those things. What we should do, you know, if your house, the first time your, your, um, you know, the first time your roof is leaking, do you demolish your house and then build a new one or do you fix the roof? I think you fix the roof, you know? And, and so, (laughs) and, and, and so I think, you know, we have some things to build on. Um, And I believe finally, I will say, I believe more in building than I do in breaking. Yeah. I believe in repairing than just as opposed to destroying. And I think that repairing is better than destroying and building is better than breaking. Um, and so my belief is that we would all be better off if we can just see what is wrong and then fix it as opposed to saying, well, this isn't working right. So throw it out. It's easy to throw things out. And then quite, quite frankly, if we look throughout history, there are many times when human beings have decided to throw things out. I mean, everyone thought that, well, let's do the French Revolution. Well, after the French Revolution, we got Napoleon. So good job there, you know, (laughs) and look at other things that we have dismantled over the years. It's easy to dismantle something. You know, we in in 2003, we thought we we needed to get rid of, um, you know, the one regime uh, in, in Iraq, which it was a horrible regime. But then we ended up with ISIS. So, you know, be careful about dismantling things because you don't know what's going to come up in in its place. Right. Um, I, I do think that, you know, if something can be repaired, it's it's easier to repair something than it is to completely destroy it, because not a lot of people know how to build something. Um, and really, uh, not a lot of people know how to repair something. But I think repairing and building is better than destroying and breaking. Mm-hmm. Yep, you're preaching. Um, so I, uh, the <laughs> again, we, we're out of time. I'm gonna let you go. But the sub, so, side conversation that you know you and I need to have, we just you know get your perspective on a lot of these things. Is you're talking about you know not breaking things and stuff like that, but understanding you know having the data and understanding really the situation and looking at the details of that situation before making decisions or you know fixing things, um, you know and having the eye or having the perspective of, you know what, this is actually what the problem is. You know, the follow-up question that I have for you, which again, you know, you don't answer that now, uh, is really more of, you know, how about the individuals who um, who are like, you know what, I don't, I don't want to fix that because that will then require me to give up my privilege, right? I don't, I don't want to touch the system because that would give up, you know, my comfortable life, right? You know, yeah. you know, and how about those individuals who actually don't want to fix anything? It's really interesting. <laughs> it's really interesting. 
you know, I, I see all the academics writing about this large number of people who believes that. Yeah. But I haven't found very many people who are like, <laughs> I mean, I've been working in this field for 20 years. Everyone I've worked with um, has either just said, well, I don't know if I can do anything about this, or they have actually tried. There have been many, many, many people who have tried to, to fix the system. Interestingly right. enough, and I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. It is my belief that we that our our primary problem here in this country, and we have a few, you know, I, I'm we have sexism, we have racism, mm -hmm. we have a number of isms that need to be held. We have homelessness, we have uh, too much crime, we don't have enough job training programs. There are a lot of things that we need to work on. But I'll tell you the thing that that I think is the most poisonous is that. People cannot, the, here's the, the bottom line. Not enough people can earn a living such that they can afford the basic necessities in life. Mm. Food, yeah. healthcare, shelter, and an opportunity for their children. I think that that is the, I think, there are a lot of challenges. Diversity is a challenge. Sexism is a challenge. But if you look at what's happened here, we have plenty of resources. Right. But those resources are not available even when someone works a 40-hour work week. Right. This idea, well, get out there and work, get a job. Well, people work sometimes two, three jobs, and yeah. they still can't afford a place to live. Right. And that's a problem. And so, you know, what I would say is... Um, there are only a few people who really don't want to give up their privilege. And those people are not really accessible, even by people like me. Right. <laughs> those are the people who are in possession of a large percentage of the resources that exist in this country. And, um, and I, I, do not have audience with them. Right. <laughs> but you know, don't. Yeah. But you know, people like me, judges, um, even at the Supreme Court level, I mean, we have this thing. I could talk, like I said, a lot more about different initiatives. I'm also on the Access to Justice Commission. Uh, we work to try to see if there are creative ways to allow people who don't have a lot of money to have access to legal resources. Cause that's another problem. Yep. Um, I'm on the veterans uh, committee for that group because I'm a veteran. And there, there, there are a lot of things that I, I do a lot of things with my spare time. I want to work on a civics project. If I can ever uh, get myself to the point where I'm not volunteering for four or five other different things. I think I've shared this right, right. project yep. thing with you, but, but we're, we're working, you know, the people who are, who are here, who you can see are working to try to make the system more equitable. The people that you speak of is a very small percentage in my view. Yeah. And they definitely do not want things to change. Right. Um, and I don't know what you do about that because <laughs> I don't have an impact on those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's a problem. I don't think there's much we can do about that either, right? Um, but hey, we just need to, you know, maintain what we can do in our spaces and affect the changes that we can affect and, you know, and see what happens, right? Hey, uh, you're on the edge with uh, Eddie detangling Black identities. I am on, uh, I'm more than honored to have Judge Kevin McKeever, sixth district judge with me, compassionate, intelligent, a committed family man, a great friend, an honorable man. I mean, hey, listen, I, I've spent some time with Judge McKeever and like, you know, like you can see, his, He's deep, right? I mean, you you start having conversations that you don't want to stop because we start talking about so many things and we go off tangent. And you know what? It's great to see or you know be in, in, in the presence of people who truly want to change the world, who are changing the world every day and being involved, um, you know, and truly changing the world and not just changing the world by putting band-aids on things, but systematically changing the world. And that is what we need. Listen, before I let you go, I'm gonna give you a minute. Um, I want you to send a message out to the world. Uh, if you want the world to hear anything from Judge McKeever in one minute, what do you want the world to hear from Judge McKeever? 
Oh man, that's great. Well, let me just tell you in one minute, um, I would just share with you something that I think is um, something that I believe for a very long time. I think that as humans, we should all make the most of out of our lives to the best of our potential. Leave this world a better place than where you found it. And I think that in doing that, you can be very proud and very happy with the life that you lived. And don't forget to care for your loved ones and for your fellow persons along the way. And thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us and spending the time. <laughs> Judge Kevin McKeever, he said it best. Hey, listen, Nelson Mandela says something similar to what he just said. He says, we can change the world and make it a better place. It is in your hands to make a difference. That's exactly what you just said. And, you know, you said something earlier that I want, I want, I want to internalize myself, which is do not self-select yourself out of what you want, right? Because we do that because, you know, our mind is like, oh, I don't think I can get that job. Or I don't think I'm qualified for this. So I'm going to self-select uh, um, out of doing that. Listen, that is going to stick with me forever. That's going to be my quote for the week. I'm going to put it on my board. Do not self-select yourself out of what you want by Judge Kevin McKeever. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a blast talking to you always. And you know what? I can't wait for the barbecue <laughs> to continue our deep conversations. All Thank right. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. <laughs>